when when I came here, it was really really fascinating. I, it seemed as if the world has a one-way mirror as far as America is concerned. That the world gets to see America and gets to understand it in a way that you know very other few countries are understood. But but yet very few Americans could see you know outside and you know see places like you know Pakistan as clearly. The heart is an organ that we perceive as vital to life, whether that's emotionally or physically. Checking for someone's pulse is one of the basic ways that we test for humanity and life. Our hearts beat faster when we are stressed or when we are physically active, or we can slow its pace by breathing deeply. But there is no question that our heartbeat is present wherever we are. Or so we think. But what if I were to tell you that it's perfectly possible for you to be living, breathing, talking human being without a heartbeat? This previously unimaginable phenomenon made possible by a device called an LVAD is one of the many that I will be discussing with Dr. Heather Varaich on today's episode. This is your host, Sadia Khan. Welcome to the show, Heather. So good to have you here. Thank you, Sadia, for uh, inviting me to talk to you. So you went to Aga Khan University Medical School in Pakistan and later came to the U.S. for your internal medicine residency at Harvard. Why did you choose to leave Pakistan to do your residency here? Well, Sadia, one of the one of the privileges I had when I was growing up and one of the luckiest days of my life was when I uh, got into the medical school at Aga Khan University, which is a very very prestigious place. And there I had the opportunity to work with a lot of my mentors who pretty much all of them had trained uh, and did their clinical training in the United States before coming back. And I just found them uh, just inspiring. I just wanted to be like them. And it was clear that if you wanted to become a very well-trained physician, that the United States was the place to be. And that's really why not just me, but really most of my other friends from my med school applied for clinical training here in uh, the U.S. So Heather, what was that transition like for you? You know, my parents weren't very affluent. In fact, the first time I ever left Pakistan was at the end uh, of medical school after really I'd finished all my education. So I was pretty grown up and before I ever stepped foot out of Pakistan. But, you know, we had a lot of exposure to American culture. I used to watch The Daily Show with Jon Stewart pretty much every day. <laughs> Uh, and so when when I came here, it was really, really fascinating. I, it seemed as if the world has a one-way mirror as far as America is concerned, that the world gets to see America and gets to understand it in a way that, you know, very other few countries are understood. But, but yet very few Americans could see, you know, outside and, you know, see places like, you know, Pakistan as clearly. So I, when I, when I came here, I was really struck by how kind people were, how multicultural this place was, and really how much respect was afforded to really um, everyone around me. It didn't matter whether you were, you know, the, uh, you know, very, very successful surgeon or you were just someone who was doing a per diem job. It, I was really struck by how much respect everyone was afforded. So what kind of advice or wisdom do you have for individuals who are, say, currently applying to residencies in the U.S. from Pakistan or other countries? What do you wish you had known at the time? I think that, you know, the United States is to date, I think, and remains you know, the best place to train in 
the world, I think, as far as clinical medicine is concerned. And, you know, I think I've seen this over the or since I've been here and I have other examples as well. But really, uh, this is a place where you really can dream. And if you have uh, the ability, then for the most part, you will be treated very fairly. I think I think the first uh, hurdle that many people face when they first move from the U.S. to the country, and that's usually uh, as a physician, that's usually getting into a residency program. That's probably the hardest uh, step. But after after that, every subsequent step becomes easier. So I, I think that's what what I would say is that you know I think that this remains a, the, really the best place in the world. I think to train as a physician. And that sometimes it's just you have to persevere past that first step, which is very, very difficult. But once you're here, I mean, I, I, I think that my, my, my own sense and my own experience, and again, granted, I've been very lucky and I've been very fortunate, but I've seen this with others too, is that there really is very little discrimination past that point. I think if you're, if you're good at what you do and if you persevere, then really I think there's no ceiling to what can be, what can be done. Heather, what drew you to cardiology as a specialty? I'd grown up around so many people who had had heart disease. South Asians in general are at particularly high risk of heart disease. And one of the things that I felt was, and again, uh, was that in in cardiology, you could really uh, make these dramatic interventions that could change the course of someone's life. I'd, I'd seen people who had had heart attacks and, and because of the timely action of their cardiologist because of a timely diagnosis and then treatment, it felt that you re- you had some real agency. Um, that is changing because, like so many other things, cardiology is now uh, heart disease is now turning more into a chronic disease, and now it is actually that aspect of cardiology that I like better. But that was really one of the main reasons why I I, I like this profession uh, this this particular field. The other thing that I felt was that I. You know, I, I I think of myself as a writer and a storyteller long before I became a physician, and I was just drawn to so many dramatic stories of patients and physicians who, uh, you know, who were taking care of patients, people with heart disease, and I felt that uh, it was really something that I wanted to see up close and be a part of, and so that was another reason why I was really drawn uh, to cardiology. Talking about your passion for writing, you have written two books. Um, your recent, it's called um, State of the Heart, Exploring the History, Science, and Future of Cardiac Disease. And then your previous book was Modern Death, How Medicine Changed um, the End of Life. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned um, through the process of writing these books? What has been some of the major takeaways uh, for you? So I'll start with my first book, Modern Death. The reason I ended up writing Modern Death was because when I had come from Pakistan to the U.S. and I had started clinical training, I felt uh, I felt pretty well prepared to do pretty much everything that I was doing. So if you had a heart attack in Pakistan, or if you had a heart attack in Boston, you know, if you had the means and access to resources, you got the same treatment. If you had an infection in your lungs, the antibiotics were the same. And that's so that seemed very familiar to me. But when it came to the end of life and how, you know, how patients were treated when they were in their last months, days or moments, it was very, very different uh, than anything that I had seen in Pakistan. And and I was very, very curious. And, and, and because what, what happens is that so many people in this country die in the hospital, they do so under the watch of a resident or intern like how I was. 
And so our exposure to death was really much more than I'd ever seen in medical school. And initially, I wrote about about those moments and some of the experiences that I'd had in uh, articles for, say, uh, for the New York Times. But I really felt that there was a this was a much bigger story. This was not a story that I could tell in 1,200 words or 800 words, and that this was that that I needed to take a deeper dive and and learn about things that perhaps weren't just part of my curriculum. I wanted to get a a real firsthand view of how the end of life has changed and how technology and also changes in how society is designed and operationalized have affected how people people die in this country and others. So that's how I ended up deciding that, you know, I really felt like I had so many stories to tell uh, that I really needed to synthesize it into a longer format, uh, which ended up being modern death. And I feel like a similar process happened with, with my second book, State of the Heart, as well. I you know, did four years of training as a cardiologist and an advanced heart failure specialist, and I, and there was so much I learned. But even that, even at the end of it, I still felt like there was so much more depth that I could go into because I really feel that, you know, so, so modern medicine has advanced so much over the last few decades. But we really reached an inflection point where we really need to take into account all the progress that we've made because I think that if we don't, then it won't inform us as we move forward. Uh, certainly that's very true of heart disease as now we're developing new technologies that are basically can take over the function of the heart. And uh, I really wanted to wanted to sort of pause in this moment, really look back, but also look at how we're treating people with heart disease today and, and use that as an anchor to study some broader themes in science and society, uh, such as you know, gender bias, for example, is something that I was very interested in in the context of heart disease, but also generally as well. Transhumanism is a theme I'm really interested in, which is basically this merger of man and machine, which for many people is science fiction, but if you're a cardiologist practicing here, you actually get to see it and see what uh, see both the perils and the promise of such advances. So that's that's how I ended up deciding about writing the book on, on heart disease as well. And I hope that you know people who get to read it will will be able to see that. And in recent interview, you said that we do everything in our modern lifestyle basically to hurt the heart. What do you mean by that, Heather? And how can we change our lifestyles to better take care of our hearts? Since we have you as a cardiologist here on our show, we would like to know what we can do to improve our lifestyle. Absolutely. You know, the interesting thing, Sadia, is that heart disease is almost a, it's not so much a medical disease anymore as much as it is starting to become an economic social disease. If you look at a disease like, say, Alzheimer's uh, dementia, where we don't have a treatment, really, we are waiting for this sort of breakthrough treatment that's going to help change the course of this disease. Or if you look at some forms of metastatic cancer in which we don't have great cancers, we're waiting for, you know, the so-called next big thing. But as far as heart disease is concerned, the next big thing, as I like to say, is, you know, guess what? It's already here. Uh, you can get it for cents from your local Walmart or Costco. Uh, and those are medications that have been developed over the last few decades. But not just that, there's so much else that we know about what's good for the heart. We know that, you know, watching your diet is very important. We know that exercise is very important. We know that not smoking is very important. But what we are seeing is that even though some sort of segments of the society, which are mostly the affluent segments of society, we are getting a lot of uptake as far as both treatments, but also as far as reducing risk is concerned, we're seeing that the inequity is actually rising in heart disease. And in fact, societies that have a lot of 
income inequality actually have worse cardiovascular disease outcomes, more so than genetics. It's actually where you're born and how much your income is or what your net worth is, which is actually much more strongly correlated with if you'll have heart disease or not. So, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's so fascinating. It's, it's, it's because it's not just a medical phenomenon anymore. It's really a social phenomenon. It's about, you know, we have all these therapies. How do we get them to patients? We have, if you look at our lifestyle, as I've said, you, you look at how we get to work every day. We, we don't walk, we don't bike, we sit in our cars. And then what do we do at work? We sit in the computer and we, we sit in front of a computer uh, and we work all day. If you look at the type of food we can have, so many people who are working two jobs, the only way that they can have food is having something that's processed and pre-made, such as from a fast food restaurant. So, and you can go down this list. You look at how much chronic stress there is in society, and that's another risk factor for heart disease. So it seems like really at every step that you see, you, if, if our society has made choices and our the, the system has, set up, uh, has been set up so that it's almost geared towards poor heart health. So that's, that's, that's what I really mean, and which is why I think the solution to this is not just going to be a medical solution. It's not just going to be a, few, a bunch of doctors just sitting down and deciding, oh, this is what we can do to help the heart. This is really going to have to be something that's much broader, that you know, connects the local governments, the schools, the, 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 the physicians, the spiritual leaders, all of them coming together and really uniting to think about how can we reimagine our modern lives and modern societies so that we uh, can achieve better heart health. And Heather, talking about social and economic inequities that that you referred to in the beginning, uh, what are some of the weaknesses that you see as a medical professional um, or that you have identified in American healthcare system today? And what are some of the changes you would ideally like to see um, as to how the healthcare industry operates today? I, I think, uh, you know, there, there is this, uh, uh, so th- just think about this. So if, if in our health system, it's, uh, we're, we're paid on what's called a fee-for-service model, which means that uh, if someone has a heart attack, they'll come to the hospital, they'll get some procedures done, they'll stay in the hospital for a few days, and then they'll go home. All that stuff is paid for. The procedure is paid for, the hospital uh, stay is paid for, et cetera. But what happens when someone, uh, when we prevent a heart attack, when someone gets an evidence-based medication or we uh, prescribe lifestyle changes that result in that person potentially avoiding a heart attack that they might have had if we hadn't done those? There's no reward for that. There's no incentive for that. And so one of the things that I think that we really need to think long and hard about is thinking about how do we move away from a fee-for-service model, which is really just like your hotel. You go to your hotel, and the, the more you eat from your minibar, the more the hospital makes. But, you know, we, start, we need to start rewarding people for not, you know, getting that candy bar from the minibar. We need to start moving towards what's been called population-based health management and population-based payments about you know, paying health systems to achieve good outcomes and not just for doing more. There is a there is an important aspect of uh, you know there's a, we we need to reward in some way you know the the delivery of services 
but but we need to move towards uh, incentivizing the achievement of better health and better outcomes rather than just the performance of more services. And I think that's just a fun, that's just a fundamental change that needs to occur in this health system so that we can change the paradigm. And, and that's a great point you make because you're, you're saying, uh, from what I understand, is that we have to emphasize more or pay more attention to preventative um, medicine. And that's important, like, preve- like our lifestyle, what we eat, whether we exercise or not, rather than being in a situation where we are already sick and um, seeking medical help. Totally. And, you know, one of the things about the heart is that, you know, the heart is you know, it's not just a great uh, and important organ, it's also a great metaphor. So, you know, when they, when they say that a broken heart cannot heal, it is actually true that, you know, once your if your heart gets damaged, it, it, sometimes, uh, most of the times, in fact, the damage is irreversible. So if we are going to, uh, I, I think that is a sort of paradigm change we need to we need to make as a health system. And we also need to put into place the right incentives to promote that change. And so I have a question for you, which like my husband and I argue about this a lot. So what are good fats? Like, can we eat meat, red meat? And is it OK to eat that? Because there was a time when it was really bad. It was considered really bad for your health and for your heart. And now we hear like we hear about keto diet and other diets where it's like integral part of those diets. What do you think? So I will preface this by saying that there's actually, even though nutrition is Probably the one thing that's, you know, we talk about the most that gets the most attention that a lot of people have questions about the data for nutrition and which ones are good or bad is actually not as strong as we would like it to be. I think one thing that we can say is that there is some data to suggest that saturated fats such as those in cheese and butter, etc. are worse than the fats that you'll get from, say, something like olive oil or avocados or nuts, etc. So at least the research would suggest that there, yes, there are some good fats over the other. But I think the most important thing, and and and, and there there is some growing sort of suggestion that a plant-based diet, so one that eliminates meats, is might be better for the health as well. Yeah, that's what I keep on telling my husband. He doesn't listen actually. I think my the, the the from my reading of the data, I think uh, the answer really is moderation. I think that if you have anything in moderation, I uh, I think that's to me that's really the most important thing. I mean, right now we're, there's a lot of you know interest in the keto diet, which is you know really replaces all the carbohydrates in your diet, but mostly fats. And my own sense is that in the end, it's all about reducing how much you eat and keeping it balanced rather than being skewed one way or another. Because, you know, that's again, that's my read of the data, but I also understand that there's a lot of controversy in this area. So my sense would be, you know, I I want to stop your husband from having, (laughs) but I think uh, maybe maybe moderation is something that all all of us can uh, incorporate as far as our diets are concerned. So Heather, let's move away from medicine and cardiology and let's talk about Another aspect of your identity, uh, which is being an immigrant. How integral is your identity as an immigrant to the work that you do as a doctor? I think you you cannot separate that, the experience of being an immigrant and the experience of growing up in another country and having seen medicine practiced a very different way from the work 
you do, whether that's whether you're a physician, whether you're a journalist or a lawyer, or writer. I think that that's just part of who you are. I think some some people, depending on their you know past experiences, are connected to that past in different ways, and uh, I I feel very very connected to it. I think that it informs me, it it humbles me, uh, it keeps me grateful for the work that I'm able to do and the outcomes that people are able to achieve here, uh, and also for um, and it, it just gives me perspective. I think that it's the same thing. You know, we've seen that with people who speak more than one language. It, it just gives you this alternative way of looking at the world, which I think is essential because uh, it provides you so much. It's the difference between seeing something in 2D versus 3D, where you add this additional dimension of how you really look at everything around you, including where, and especially, I would say, the work as a physician. And you've previously talked about how your parents' has, visas have been denied. Uh, was that during Obama administration or during current administration? And that was actually during Obama's administration. So, you know, my parents, you know, my, my mom has is a dentist. She's studied actually here in the U.S. before and she's visited a few times and then kind of, you know, randomly and unceremoniously, she was she actually had a valid visa. She was coming to see her granddaughter, who's my daughter, who's now almost four years old, and that was four years ago. And since then, her visa, she had a valid visa and she was denied basically uh, her seat. I mean, at the boarding, uh, right when she was about to board the plane, as you can imagine, that was a really traumatic experience, both for us, because we had we were expecting her within the next 24 hours. We had made food for her, et cetera. And we were told that, you know, she couldn't come. And then since then, she and my dad both have been rebuffed many times as they've tried to get visas. You know, it's really, it's, it's really, really sad. And, and, and I think that it's really traumatic, especially for my parents, because, you know, they have, my parents have, you know, three kids, and all of them happen to be in here in the United States. My sister is a pediatrician. My brother is a computer engineer. I'm, you know, a physician. We're, we're all here. We all have green cards and they would you know really like to see the lives that they've helped us build here um the homes we've sort of put together and the the families that are growing and yet they're they're denied that and and i think that that goes back to the first thing you said about you know of 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 course things like this will affect how you look at the world and and i think that's one of the reasons i think the fact that it happened during obama's time was actually very shocking. And I think that I, I keep going back to it because so many of the policies that we see that this, administra- uh, this administration champions, those were in some way or form, they were already in place, but they were less cherished, I guess. They were less promoted. Uh, and uh, But now I, think they've, now I think things have really changed. Uh, they've taken a different type of tone, really. And you brought this up in your recent interview on Fresh Air as well. And I thought it was an incredible point. Um, you talk about how, as you, you were just mentioning, that you're a green card holder and that you're an individual who's serving the people of this country. And every day you take care of American citizens and non-citizens alike to best of your ability. And your parents should not be denied a visa. However, I am almost hesitant to put too much emphasis on your qualifications as a justification for your parents' visa. Because to me, and this is my opinion, it sets the bar so high and it just puts 
undue burden on other immigrants because what you're doing and what you're what you're qualified to do is amazing you make all of us so proud uh, pakistani americans pakistanis but at the same time immigrants exist on a broad spectrum and there are immigrants like you who are almost like superhuman and then there are immigrants who are here on humanitarian grounds or who are here to seek asylum i totally agree with you i don't think that my work should mean that i should be you know treated any differently i think and i think a lot of times when you know in this country the discourse is a lot around illegal immigrants but really you can tell that the basis of that uh, whole discussion is really about immigration in general and uh, you know i don't i mean a lot of we've, we've seen that right i mean we've seen some some of the scenes from the the president's rallies that it really is nothing to do with whether you're a citizen or not whether you're successful or not successful as long as you look different you are basically to some people you've been you've, you've been we've been propped up as a threat as as an existential threat to their sort of um, their life and their 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 status so i i i'm i don't think that anyone should be treated differently because whether they're successful or not but i think that there the, i think a lot of people assume that if you're a successful immigrant that you're not affected by the fact you're still an immigrant i think that they just assume that oh if you're successful at work then you're just you're enjoying the same type of privilege that anyone else is and which is true and as i mentioned at the start of this interview i think that professionally i i still feel that there are very few if any barriers to your success uh, whether you were born in the united states or not and there are many examples especially in medicine and uh, other fields but you're still at the base of it you still are Uh, you there's a commonality that you know all of us immigrants share that that is completely divorced from the the what you do at work when you're in front of a a you know, immigration officer they don't care and uh, so i think the reason the one of the things i wanted to sort of bring that out is that you know i think a lot of people feel that uh, you know we there's a lot of talk about merit based immigration but we all know that this is just a, this is all a slippery slope it really has nothing to do with merit it has to do with that is the safe thing to say right now because the focus is on you know so much of the focus is on illegal immigrants who are you know coming who are you know want to seek asylum here but really it's the the, the entire movement does not in the end at its core the the movement against immigrants does not care about what's on your whether you have a visa or not they it just cares that you're different and uh, that's my that's that that and that's a real force that i think that we need to face rather than focus on the technicalities i think and and talking about discrimination there was a recent ethics column in the new york times that dealt with the question of whether it is ethical for patients to choose or deny care from a doctor on the basis of say race gender special specifically in the context of hospitals and public healthcare institutions um the answer of course was no um that healthcare professionals in an institutional setting ought not to accommodate those instances of bigotry have you ever faced discrimination of that sort in your work as a as a doctor and how has if so how has the system supported you Well I think sadly thankfully no one I've not no one has yet refused to sort of be cared by me because I'm you know an immigrant one of the reasons is really that 
I mean, the hospitals are such diverse places. Uh, you know, you come to a hospital and more than likely you will see people who, from really all walks of life who have come together. And and so I, I think it, would be, it wouldn't be feasible in most places for to do that. But also, I think it just shows you the privilege of, you know, what we do is that we are placed in a place where we can help people and and when people need help they 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 see you differently and that's why i think it presents to me an opportunity to be able to sort of reach people in a very direct way where i can sort of show them through my work that you know that we're not all that different and uh, and and sometimes that can be burdensome feeling like you're carrying the load of you know an entire people because you know we, we all feel like we're representing not just our fields or hospitals, but really our, our the, the the place that we belong to. So I think that's what makes a hospital a special place. I think as an immigrant, is it's a safe place because the people who are you're you're there for a purpose, and and the people around you, you know, they need you, and 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 so I think that that shields I think a lot of us from these things. But again, that doesn't mean those instances don't occur. I know of people who've had this those experiences happen to them. Um, not just immigrants, but you know, black doctors or or women. I mean I mean people face discrimination even from from their patients, although personally I've I've been lucky and I haven't in a in a direct way. So Heather, you're going to start working at VA in Boston soon. Is it like in September? end of September. End of September. What are your hopes? What are you hoping to achieve other than obviously the kind of work that you're already doing? I mean, you're young, you've already written three books, um, you're, you're doing amazing work. But other than that, as an immigrant, what, what are your hopes from that job? I think that, you know, as far as the job is concerned, I think that I'm there for a very, very specific and, you know, an important reason, which is that, you know, there's a, it is to set up a program on in advanced heart failure. It's a, to provide a service for veterans that really at this point does not exist in that region in a very direct way. And and I think that anything that comes as a sort of collateral to be, me being able to do that work is what I'm looking forward to. But, you know, I do I do hope that, you know, I think one of the one of the things that I think most immigrants in this country especially those who are on visas, they're, they're, they're always worried that, you know, they want to be able to fly under the radar. And they don't want to cause too much, they don't want to bring, most people don't want to bring too much attention to themselves. Uh, they just want to be able to just live a normal life, you know, provide for their family and uh, find joy in their personal life as well as their professional life. And they don't want to really make any type of waves, especially, and I feel, and maybe this is just me around, who they are, that they're, they're, they're immigrant identities, because I feel like for so many, the goal is to one day be, you know, American citizens. I, I think that in some ways, and immigrants are very visible, but I think we, need, we, we cannot be afraid of visibility because, you know, we have to contribute to the society, but, but we also have to make sure that those contributions are visible so that people realize the value that we bring, not just to the society at large, but to individual people. Again, you know, not everyone is privileged to do that. I'm, as you've already mentioned, that I feel very lucky to, you know, have had the opportunities I've had. But, but really, I think in our in our own ways, I don't think that we can be, we can be invisible because whether we like it or not, we are our lives are we are we are political entities at this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. We just by the nature of you know who we are, what we look like, how we speak. I, I think that the the people who will want to 
demonize immigrants will continue to do so whether we are uh, whatever we do whether we like it or not my hope is that the the this, the, the the type of fear that i've seen in immigrant communities the type of fear that i've seen in people around me people who are immigrants people who are you know hoping one day to be able to call the us their home it goes away but it won't go away with us retreating into the shadows Absolutely, absolutely. And Heather, in the end, if you were to describe America in a word or a phrase or a sentence, how would you describe it? I'll, I'll share the story that I heard someone else share with me. And um, uh, he was one of my friends, he was an American, he was trying to explain to me what America is. And he said that, you know, I, when, I, when, when he was in Europe, he, uh, he was sitting, uh, he would see groups of people. Uh, sometimes you'd see a group of Asian people. Sometimes you'd see a group of, uh, you know, people from, you know, South Asia. And and then sometimes you'd see groups where people looked, where there there's a very diverse group where, you know, a group of, you know, friends or sort of colleagues would be, you know, there'd be black people, white people, Asian people, brown people. And he, he would be, he would immediately know that they're American because of that diversity, because of how the society, society is. And to me, that's really the sort of one of the hallmarks of, uh, of this country. Uh, and, you know, I'm, you know, if you look at the, the success that immigrants have had in this country, and really it's a country built by immigrants, it's unparalleled. I mean, the opportunities that I'm provided here as a physician, but also beyond beyond uh, what I do as a, as a writer are really uh, unparalleled in this world. And it's an, it's an ideal that you know, at least, at least uh, that 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 I think that we should continue to strive for and work for. We know that we're not going to reach that ideal society just by sitting back. It takes a lot of work, and if these last few years uh, since 2016 have proven, it's it won't happen by accident. And if you're complacent, then then this ideal will slip away. So that to me is America. America is the an idea that you can be from wherever you want, and you can have. You can look whatever way you want. You can speak whatever way you want. You can have any type of sexual orientation and you can still succeed. And you're judged by the basis of your work rather than any of those characteristics. And I think that idea is under threat. And not just here, really across the world. If you look in Europe, if you look at you know Australia, et cetera, I mean, all these places, that idea is under under threat and under attack. And so, and it is that idea that I think is worth striving for and fighting for. Uh, because so much of the world looks to the U.S. for inspiration, and sometimes, and most of the times, it has been a positive force. Thank you so much, Hader. This was wonderful. Thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for such an upbeat interview. Um, thank you so much, and thank you to my listeners for listening to our pod. We will be posting links to Heather's articles, his books and stuff on our website once we publish his episode. So come back next time when we have another inspiring story. And in the meantime, stay connected 